The scripture for today, as we begin a brand new series to start off the year, for the, uh, the, the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be in the first part of the book of Acts. So we're going to be covering chapters 1 through 9 over the next number of weeks. Acts is a pretty awesome book. So our text this morning is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven." Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. Lord, I pray not only for our minds to be informed, but Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the lives of each of us gathered here in these moments in this place, those who are watching online now or even at a later date, I pray for the work of your Spirit to not only inform our minds, but to inspire our hearts as well, to draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that our wills will be changed away from focusing so much on the self and on the things of this world and instead focus upon you and your will for us and for this world. Lord, I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to take these these feelings we have of freshness and newness and a new start with the beginning of a new year and not, Lord, in, in terms of a resolution But Lord, in terms of a resolve, a resolve to worship you more fully, to to dive more deeply into your word, not just today, but throughout these coming months. Lord, to seek you for each and every decision that we face. Lord, to look to you in the midst of every obstacle that may come our way. Lord, I pray for you and for us to rely upon you and to listen to you as we as we as we face struggles and as we experience victories as well. Lord, may our lives be lived in your presence, and may we live fully, heart, mind, soul, and body, in the grace, the knowledge, the goodness, the power, the presence of Jesus, your Son. 
As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus has lifted up, and it's in his name that we pray. As our Savior and as our Lord, through your Son, O Father God, in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. As we begin, I want to say a very special welcome and hello to those who are joining with us online today, especially Tim. Uh, we are missing your presence here, Tim, and uh, sorry that you forgot we were having church this morning. Anyway, hope you're tuned in. Uh, we, will, we will tease you about that a little bit later. Anyway, uh, Tim, uh, hope you have a great day and enjoy the sermon, and um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll save some uh, interruptions for you later, and we'll, we'll film those for you. Anyway, hope you're having a great day, Tim. We really do miss you. Everybody say hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. There we go. And uh, for others not named Tim who are watching, we're glad that you're online with us today as well. Remember, you can text in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092, and that number will be on the screen. All right, as we begin a new year, we're beginning a new series. Last year, we looked, we took 52 weeks, and we looked at the life of Jesus from January through December. Every week was focused on what Jesus did, what Jesus said, what happened to Jesus. So the focus of Jesus in his life culminated in his death for our sin, culminated in his resurrection, his return to life, in the plan of God to save us from our sins. But the story does not end there. The story does not end with Jesus rising from the dead and then ascending back into heaven. The story continues. Acts is that continuation. But I want to take one step back because this is an important question for a lot of people. When we come to a book like Acts, why is it even in the Bible? How did it get in there in the first place? Well, that's a good question. We've got to remember that all of the documents of the New Testament, it's 27 individual books or letters that were compiled and assembled and put together as our New Testament. All of these documents are deemed Scripture. Now, the word Scripture just means writing, hence the word script. You know, like fonts have different scripts. The word script just means writing. But what makes these writings special? What makes them important? What puts them in a position as authoritative over our lives? Why do, we, why do we submit to them? and Why do we yield to them? Why do we esteem them? Well, these scripts become Scripture. And Scripture is, is basically holy writings or divinely inspired writings. And therefore, they are authoritative over us. From the very beginning, from the very first century, Christians have looked to these writings and, and given them the authority to change minds, to change beliefs, to set doctrine, to, to be, be the standard to which we are to conform our lives. What makes them so unique? Well, they are divinely inspired the Apostle Peter actually says that no prophecy of Scripture, no teaching of Scripture, no teaching as Scripture comes about without being led by the Holy Spirit. And the 27 books that we have in the New Testament are deemed to have been authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit through divinely guided human authors. 
Now, the standard for determining that was very stringent. There's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of just blatant lies out there. If you're familiar with Dan Brown and some of his writings, the Da Vinci Code and things like that, his works, they're, they're, they're make-believe. He rewrites history. He does, not, he does not record what actually happened. He embellishes and he lies. He seeks to dismiss the authoritativeness of the Scriptures. And there are so many other writers and popular cultural figures out there who do the very same thing. Every, every year around Christmas and, and Easter especially, you will see specials on TV about the lost books of the Bible, the banned books of the Bible, the stuff they kept out to hide from you. It's all hogwash. There's some other names for it, but we're in church, so we have to use good words. The books that we have in the New Testament and all of the other pretenders and contenders were never suppressed, never hidden. They were known about. And the ones that did not make it in were deemed illegitimate. They were deemed inauthentic. They were deemed unhelpful. They were deemed as non-divinely inspired. The, 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 the standard for determining which books made it in and which didn't was very stringent. And there was a lot of unanimity behind it. It wasn't a vote, like Dan Brown says, a vote that narrowly passed about which ones were going to be Scripture and which ones weren't. Everything was very overwhelming. It was very clear. The categories or the, the criteria for determining were things like apostolic authorship, association, or approval. Everything had to be based and founded upon the apostles of Jesus who were with him during his time of teaching his ministry, who saw him die, who saw him alive after he died. They became the foundation for the church. And so the writings that the apostles did, they were automatically accepted. But there were others who were close to the apostles or were associates of the apostles, and they wrote. And what they wrote was considered authoritative as well. For example, the Gospel of Mark. Mark was not an apostle. He, he may have had familiarity with, with the ministry of Jesus at certain points, but his faith in Jesus didn't really seem to kick in until later. And he becomes, a, he becomes part of Paul's, the apostle Paul's traveling missionary teams, at least for a very short season, until he got homesick and ditched them. As part of his restoration process, he was paired up with the apostle Peter eventually. And as Peter was ministering in Rome and preaching and leading the church there, Mark was his primary assistant, his secretary, so to speak. And we have the gospel of Mark is Mark, Mark writing down Peter's sermons and stories about Jesus. So he was not an apostle, but he was associated with an apostle. Therefore, his writings are authoritative. Others as well. The book of James James was the younger half-brother of Jesus. He ascended after he came to faith for not believing in Jesus during Jesus' life, but he came to faith after he saw Jesus alive after his death. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem, a very significant and important leader, along with the, the other apostles. His writings are authoritative, and it's, so it goes like that. But each of the writings had to be authored or associated by an apostle. Adherence to certain core doctrines 
The truth of Christianity was passed on through poems and through songs. It was an oral tradition because that's how most of the world has worked throughout history. You pass on the stories, the legends. You pass on the truths. We see, actually see that in Scripture. There are some, there are some passages of Scripture that where, where Paul quotes the oral traditions that were passed on. For I passed on to you what I received. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. And Paul does that. We see that in the, in the way the wording is. There are poems, there are stanzas that would communicate truth about Jesus that was passed on, that was used as a teaching tool. And those teaching tools form the criteria, the basis of understanding who Jesus is and what he did. And so the adherence to those doctrines was foundational to decide which books made it into the New Testament. 23 of the 27 books were written before A.D. 70, which means they were written about within the first 30 to 35 years after Jesus died. The books weren't written right away because they expected Jesus to return right away. Jesus was taking just a little vacay and we'd be back within a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months. And as, as it's all of a sudden the months stretched into a couple of decades, they began to say, you know what? We need to start writing this down. Also, as people started getting executed for believing in Jesus, they said, we need to preserve the teachings. We need to preserve the truth. We need to preserve the testimony of the apostles. So adherence to those doctrines and the adherence to the, the widely recognized truth. And then thirdly was the acceptance by the broadest base of the church. 21 of the 27 books were instantaneously authoritative, without question, without dispute, no questions asked whatsoever. Some of the smaller books were looked at a little bit more suspiciously because they were not, they were not very widely distributed, like 2nd and 3rd John. Very, very tiny letters written to more isolated groups of Christians. That, those documents took a little bit longer to be authenticated and embraced by the church as a whole. But as I said, there was plenty of other contenders and pretenders literature-wise. And there were different factions and there were different cultic groups. They all had their own unique writings, letters, and books that would have really weird things about the life of Jesus as a child or other miracles that Jesus did that were rather outlandish and, and did not pass the, 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 the ring of truth test with the gospels that were already written and established and known and that the apostles had passed on. So the books we have are the books that were recognized to be authentic, to be accurate, and to be authoritative. Acts is one of those in spite of who wrote it. We see in 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul writes, all scripture all of the divine writings. All Scripture is God-breathed. As God breathed into human beings to give them life, the breath of God makes the Word of God alive as well. That's why it still speaks. That's why it still changes hearts. 
That's why it still changes the world. That's why it still ticks people off. It's not dead literature. It's living and active. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We get from that just one other subtle truth I want to make sure we, we embrace. The Scriptures are not to study The Scriptures are not just to admire, to appreciate. The Scriptures are the motivation to do. God breathed to teach, to learn, to rebuke, which means to be convicted and to be changed, correcting our thinking and our living, being trained in righteousness so that we can get busy doing what Jesus wants us to do to fulfill his mission. That's what the scriptures are for. So let's get into the book of Acts and its author. The author is not named in the the text at all, but the earliest tradition, from the very beginning, the other church leaders who did write and the documented things, they said the author was a man named Luke. And not only did he write Acts, he wrote the gospel that bears his name as well which always cracks me up. We have the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And gospel means good news. Well, the good news isn't about Matthew. I mean, Matthew got saved, and that's good news. The good news isn't about Mark. Mark got redeemed and restored to ministry, but that's not the good news. Luke himself was not the good news, although he was a pretty awesome story of a Gentile who came to faith in Jesus. That's pretty cool. John is the gospel. There's no good news about John except that he got to live a long life, overcame his anger management issues through the work of the Holy Spirit, became the apostle of love. But the gospels are about Jesus. It's the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the good news of Jesus, and that's always the focus. So Luke writes basically a two-volume set, a life of Jesus pre-resurrection and a life of Jesus post-resurrection. That's what we have in the book of Acts. He was the author. There was never a single contrary voice. There was no dissent. There was no dispute. Luke wrote these books, and that was it. They were settled. And that's an amazing feat because Luke was a Gentile. He was not a Jewish man. Not only was he a Gentile, he was not an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. He wasn't there at the Sermon on the Mount. He never saw any miracles. Luke came to faith in Jesus after Jesus died and rose again. He became a Gentile believer in Jesus well after, perhaps even a few years after the resurrection of Jesus. And yet when he writes... All of the apostles, all of the church leaders says, yep, this is the authoritative scriptures. Read it, listen to it, believe it, put it into practice. He was a Gentile convert. He was a medical doctor as well. Luke, the physician. We know that because not only does Paul actually say he's a doctor in the book of Colossians, but the style of language used in these books 
The New Testament was written in a, in a, in a language called Koine Greek, common Greek. It was the, the, the common language of the empire at that time. But just like with English, we have different levels of, of the way English is written, right? We have very, um, very, you know, uh, erudite, very lofty, very polished writing. And then we have that all the way down to slang and just more common language, right? Greek was the same way. Many variations, many forms. But with the way Luke writes, you could tell he was educated. You could tell he was from probably one of the upper classes. His language is very smooth. His, his um, word choice is very precise, very proper. We even see in some of you know, him some of his descriptions of like afflictions that Jesus healed, he uses some language that would be very common to medical professionals. He writes in a very, very polished, very precise, very educated level of Greek, as opposed to some of the other books in the New Testament that were written much more um, by a, a person who that was not their first language. So we know that from the way he wrote. Luke was a member of Paul's missionary team, always good to travel with a doctor. And Paul evidently had a lot of issues. So he was Paul's personal physician. But he was the one who would travel with Paul. And he experienced so many of the things that Paul faced. We see that in significant sections of the book of Acts. Luke slips in, and then we went here, and we did this. He was there. He was an eyewitness to the ministry and the missionary work of the Apostle Paul, even if he had not been an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. And then one of the most heartbreaking texts in the entire New Testament is from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, it's right at the end of the book, written probably days, maybe a week or more before the Apostle Paul was executed by beheading. He writes this to his young apprentice, Timothy, only Luke is with me. Means all of the ones that they had been sent on other works, some had abandoned him because of the, the trials he was going through. But this Luke, this Luke stayed with the Apostle Paul to the bitter end, through the, the, the sham trials, through the accusations, through the imprisonments. Luke was there. He was the last man standing, unless Timothy was able to get there in time. So we know a little bit about Luke. But what we do know, pretty impressive man. Luke is also special because between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he's the primary human author of the New Testament. He writes more words than the Apostle Paul. Paul beats him in terms of books. Paul wrote 13 letters. Those are all in there. A couple of them are pretty long. Romans, 1 Corinthians are very long. But you know what? All of Paul's words together don't match Luke's. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts have 37,969 words. 
No, I did not sit and count them. That's just part of my research. Paul wrote 32,471. That is the kind of teaching I don't think you're gonna get in any any other church in town. That's the kind of teaching that will help you sleep at night or put you to sleep at night, whichever. Luke was a prolific author. It's this Gentile who comes to faith is the primary human author of the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke is one of the most powerful representations of the life of Jesus. And Luke says that he wrote that because of his research and because of his study and actually because of eyewitness interviews. It was quite an undertaking, quite a project. The book of Acts was also was research and was real experience as well. So why did Luke write this? Well, both letters or both books are addressed to a certain Theophilus. The name simply means friend of God or lover of God. And it could be just a generic term, kind of a euphemism almost. To anybody who is interested in knowing God or loving God, this book is for you. But it's more likely that Theophilus was a very specific individual, a person also like Luke who was a Gentile, probably from more of an upper level of society, who either was a believer in Jesus or who was intrigued enough about Jesus that he wanted to know for himself because the stories of Jesus were just so astounding. And so Luke sets out to write an account to help either convince Theophilus to believe in Jesus or to assure him of what he believes. He addresses Theophilus as most excellent. And we see that in other places, not only in the book of Acts, but in other accounts from that time period. That was a very common way to address politically influential people. So Acts may have been written to a political official. That's why Luke wrote. The title is The Acts of the Apostles. It's been that since the, since the early second century, which is kind of a weird name because there was, there was 12 apostles and then Judas did his thing, so he was out and they replaced Judas with Matthias, so there was 12 and then Paul comes along as the 13th apostle. But the Acts of the Apostles only focus on two apostles, Peter and Paul. The other guys, not so much. Oh, we'll get to hear their stories when we get to heaven. We've got plenty of time for that. All of the other apostles and what they did. But the book of Acts only focuses on two. So the Acts of the Apostles has always been misnamed a little bit. If you have one of the more modern versions of the NIV, you may notice the title of the book is just simply Acts. doesn't say anything else. And that's a good title, actually because it is a book of acts and actions. Luke wrote this volume as the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Did you catch the first words? What Jesus began to do and to teach up until. The very specific choice of the word began means that it's just a starting point and that it did not end with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, nor did it end with the ascension. The ministry of Jesus, what he began to do and what he began to teach continues after that. It is Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit 
to the apostles at Pentecost. It is Jesus who appears to Saul and speaks to him and calls him to be an apostle. It is Jesus who heals when the apostles are bringing or restoring health to people who are sick and hurting. It is Jesus who opens Lydia's heart to receive the gospel. It is Jesus himself who counsels Paul while he is seeking wisdom and direction. The book of Acts also shows us how the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles and the new disciples to fulfill Jesus' command to take the gospel. Remember the command in our passage? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you remember from perhaps your college days when you had to write a thesis statement for a paper, Acts 1.8 is that thesis statement. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the outline of the whole book. The apostles and the church forming in Jerusalem, selling in Jerusalem, thousands of people coming to faith, organizing into church communities, and then experiencing opposition and being forced to flee Jerusalem. And as they flee Jerusalem, where do they flee? They flee into Judea, and they take their faith with them. They take the teachings of Jesus with them. They take the power of the Holy Spirit with them. And all of a sudden, Jerusalem is no longer just the the only localized expression of the Christian faith. It is spread throughout the territory. It's expanded into Samaria because the gospel is for Samaritans as well. And then from there, it expands into the Gentile world and the surrounding areas until the book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul in prison in Rome. And the very last words of the book, and Paul lived there for two years, preaching with boldness, even as he was under house arrest. The gospel is unhindered. That's the progression from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, which at that time was pretty much the Roman Empire and the seat of the Roman Empire. So why is Acts important and relevant for us? And we're going to look at it over these next few weeks. It's not dry, dusty history. It recounts the birth of the revolution that turned the world upside down. There are arrests and riots. There is murder. There are debates, philosophical, theological debates. There are shipwrecks. There are beatings. There are harrowing escapes. There are trials, and there are miracles. In fact, there are more miracles recorded and mentioned in the book of Acts than there are in any of the Gospels. Jesus said, you, as his followers, will do greater works than these. The book of Acts is the beginning of those greater works. Greater in number, more extensive in reach. The book of Acts is a book of miracles, and yes, it is action-packed. The book of Acts records how the very first followers of Jesus helped others become believers in Jesus, how they evangelized both Jews and Gentiles. That's been the mission from day one, is to turn non-believers into believers. 
to help people become disciples, learners, students, apprentices, followers of Jesus. And how has that happened? Well, we see in the book of Acts how the apostles reasoned with their fellow Jews and how they presented Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures, fulfillment of the prophecies. We see the apostle Paul going to the Gentiles who did not care about Jewish theology and Jewish prophecies or Jewish scriptures, but instead they cared about philosophy and wisdom and intellectual approaches. And Paul crafts the gospel to teach them from their very own philosophers and from their very own wisdom and their very own thinking. The gospel applies to both. But we see that in the book of Acts. We see how the Christians organized into churches. And you know what? It wasn't always pretty. It wasn't always easy. Churches back then had as much struggles and stresses and things to deal with as we do today. The existence of the church in my mind is one of the number one evidences for the reality of Jesus because there is no other reason for this many people to get together and to try to coexist together and get along as well as we do if it weren't for a divine impetus. Because we's weird, we's annoying, we's difficult, but yet the church not only survives, the church thrives. The church is expanding. The church is growing. More people believe in Jesus today than, than yesterday, and more will believe even tomorrow. The church, with all of its warts, with all of its wounds, with all of its imperfections, the church continues to storm the gates of hell and experience victory. That's the hand of God. That's the divine prodding and leading of Jesus. The early churches faced struggles on how to organize, how to get together, and then how to stay together. So we're going to learn some things from them as we look at this series. It records how the very first followers of Jesus overcame persecution. In fact, that's one of the primary themes of the book, is Christians were persecuted. Christians continue to be persecuted. Our experience with basic social acceptance, and yes, there's a few um, things where the tide may be turning for us, but we are unique within history, this modern-day expression of Christianity not facing dire opposition, not facing life and death. The reports continue to come out that the most dangerous characteristic for a person living on this planet is not obesity, it is not heart disease, it is not even poverty. The most dangerous defining characteristic on this planet for a person is if they are a believer in Jesus. Yes, untold millions still suffer from poverty and political corruption and all these things, and that's why the, the mission of the church is more important than ever. But even in our day, Thousands of people across this globe are executed and tortured and imprisoned and deprived simply because they believe in Jesus. 
and they will not worship a dictator as Lord. They will only worship Jesus. The book of Acts shows that overcoming and enduring persecution is part of the call for being a Christian. Jesus said, they've hated me, they're gonna hate you. That's how the early church handled decision-making, how they sought the leading of the Holy Spirit, how they searched the Scriptures, how they discussed, how they debated. It's important insights for us as well. The book of Acts is special because it contains the very first appearance the first coining of a new word in human history, the word Christian. Christian means Christ's one or of Christ. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The book of Acts records the historic decision not to require circumcision as a requirement for becoming a Christian. All of the first Christians were Jews. Part of the Jewish covenant was in order to believe in God, be a member of the covenant, you had to get circumcised. And so the very first Gentile Christians had to get circumcised in order to become a good Jew so that they could accept the Jewish Messiah. And then all of a sudden, more and more Gentiles are coming to faith, but they're saying, <laughs> we love Jesus we're going to worship Jesus. We're going to acknowledge him as Lord. We're going to acknowledge him as king. We are going to learn to live out his teachings. We are willing to get baptized, but is that really necessary? We're not Jews. And Jesus is the new covenant after all. And the Jewish leaders got together and said, you know what? They're probably right. No longer a requirement. And the gospel exploded among the Gentile world, understandably so. The book of Acts contains a teaching of Jesus not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And it's one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's contained in the book of Acts. You see, Jesus is continuing to teach and continuing to do, even in the book of Acts. So what personal benefit do we get? Well, motivation and tools for our own evangelism. We are to be disciples who make disciples. That is the call. How do we talk to our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, others about Jesus? It's a tough task, and it's a hard task, but we can see from the first Christians how they did it. We may learn a few things over the next few weeks. It's about learning how the, the Holy Spirit works and the Holy Spirit's power that is available to us. The book of Acts is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, if that's, that's a much more accurate title. More than 60 times the Holy Spirit is referenced. And we get this very full, beautiful picture how the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, directs the disciples, provides for the disciples, guides the disciples, empowers the disciples, works for the disciples. The same Holy Spirit is available for us as well. We can learn about how to discern providence, which is how the Lord provides and guides. Acts has a lot of wisdom for us on that. And lastly, how to expect, endure, and overcome persecution. 
because that was the, the fuel of the church. That was why the church in Jerusalem left Jerusalem and went to Judea, went to Samaria, went to the ends of the earth because they were persecuted. Persecution always fuels the growth of the church. Throughout our 2,000 years now of Christian history, every nation, every government, every dictator, every ruling political ideology or party, everyone that has tried to either suppress or extinguish the Christian faith, First off, the faith has survived every single one of those persons, personalities, ideologies, and attempts. And the faith that is remaining in place is larger and stronger than before. In every single instance, persecution fuels the church. But I want to end on this. Something that is just kind of included almost... It's very unnoticeable, almost, in the book of Acts. It's in that passage about the disciples who were charged with turning the world upside down with this teaching about Jesus. Acts 17 includes these words of people who were not Christian believers. They were accusing. This is what they said. These men who have turned the world upside down came here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord. Satan is not, even though he is the ruler of this world. Jesus is Lord. The self is not. Jesus is Lord. Political ideology, systems, and structures is not. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what we see in the book of Acts.